a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, sex trafficking, and assault that some people may find offensive. This episode also includes discussions of violence against children that might be particularly upsetting to some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On October 18, 1909, the windows of the most famous brothel in Chicago went dark in the evening for the first time in more than nine years. Outside, on Dearborn Street, thousands of vice crusaders approached. Leading the parade was internationally renowned evangelist Rodney Gypsy Smith, he and his marching missionaries sought to bring about an end to the quasi-decriminalized sex industry of Chicago's Levy District once and for all. Inside the Everlay Club, sisters Minna and Ada Everlay huddled in the parlor, along with their Everlay butterflies and the night's assortment of customers. They giggled as they heard the marchers halt right outside the club's front door. The preacher exhorted his followers to kneel and pray in the shadow of the Everlay Club. Wouldn't the band please play a special hymn for the girls inside lured into a life of sin? Perhaps they would hear it and be called to Christ. They did hear it and rolled their eyes, waiting impatiently for the parade to finish so that they could take their clients upstairs. Minna and Ada insisted that the girls obey the police department's orders and keep quiet and still during the march. But it was awfully boring, just laying around the house listening to hymns. Finally, after what seemed like forever, the parade moved on. The brothel again came to life. Lights flicked on. The pianist began to play the gold-leafed piano. But when the bell began ringing and didn't stop, the girls realized more than a few missionaries had stayed behind in the Levy District and not for the sake of evangelizing. In fact, the night of Gypsy Smith's March Against Vice became the busiest single night of business in the history of the Levy's many brothels. A very few of the richest and most respectable marchers even gained admission to the Everlay Club. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? 
we didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. Today, we're finishing up our two-part deep dive into the Everlay sisters, the infamous madams who ran Chicago's finest brothel from 1900 to 1911. Known for hosting millionaires, athletes, and royalty, the Everlay Club featured extravagant touches, including 18-carat gold spittoons and a life-size statue of Cleopatra. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Bringing in $120,000 per year, the equivalent of about $3.5 million today, the Everlay Club was frequented by millionaires, politicians, and even royalty. It became a Chicago landmark and helped to inspire an era of anti-sex work legislation throughout the United States. Last week, we told you how Ada and Minna Everlay, born Ada and Minna Sims, created their exclusive club. We walked you through their childhood in Virginia and Kentucky, their time on the stage, and their decision to go into the business of sex. And we took you inside their decision to launch an unusually high-end brothel where sex workers earned more than most business executives. This week, we'll explore the heyday of the Everlay Club, from rip-roaring parties for a prince to an unexpected visit from a heavyweight champion. During their time as Chicago's leading madams, Ada and Minna Everlay showed a remarkable understanding of the psychology of sales, branding, and marketing. Today, we'll discuss how they built a brand so powerful that it became their downfall. And we'll show you how the anti-vice rhetoric that closed the doors of the Everlay Club is still affecting sex workers today. In the early years of the Everlay Club at the turn of the 20th century, Chicago's official policy for dealing with brothels was segregation. In other words, herding all illicit businesses into a single area. Chicago's most notorious vice district, home to the Everlay Club, was known as the Levy. In other American cities, a vice district might have been studiously ignored by corrupt politicians, whose palms and maybe other parts, were frequently greased by madams and pimps. But in Chicago's first ward, politicians openly celebrated the success of their local brothels. And none was more successful than the Everlay Club. It was, to the average brothel, what an Aston Martin is to a bicycle. At a time when sex could be purchased with a 50-cent piece, the Everlay sisters charged as much as $500 for a night with one of their butterflies. That's more than $14,000 today. 
That's one reason the local aldermen, Michael Hinkydink Kenna and bathhouse John Coughlin, were such great fans of the place. Not only were the sister madams happy to pay hefty protection fees in order to continue operating, they were classing up the neighborhood. Bathhouse in particular had a flair for the dramatic, having recently been named the city's poet laureate. He was attracted to the Everlay sisters' over-the-top style. Minna was always dripping with diamond butterfly brooches, and Ada was so besotted with her gold-leafed piano, she joked about being unable to marry because she could never leave it. As they noticed the powerful aldermen admiring their opulent tastes, the Everlay sisters consciously included and flattered him, showing a remarkable understanding of the effectiveness of sycophancy. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. Sycophancy is just a psychological term for what's popularly referred to as sucking up. According to a pioneering 1964 study by Edward Jones, there are three types of sycophancy. Other enhancement, what we know as flattery, opinion conformity, in other words, being a yes-man, and self-presentation, or self-promotion. All three carry certain dangers when wielded ineptly. Nobody likes to know he's being insincerely praised. Some of the other madams in the levy were less politically gifted than the Everleys. Out of one side of their mouths, they tell Bathhouse John how remarkable his songs and poems were. Then, behind his back, they'd spread rumors about his hiring a ghostwriter. The Everleys, too, heard about Bathhouse John's ghostwriter, but they never said a word about it. Instead, they ordered their pianist, Vanderpool Vanderpool, to play one of The Bath's compositions, Dear Midnight of Love, at least once per night. According to Jones's study, sycophancy is most effective when delivered by a third party. In other words, rather than flattering someone directly, a talented sycophant will get someone else to tell the target how highly she thinks of him. By having Vanderpool Vanderpool play Dear Midnight of Love, the sisters tasked him with delivering the message that they held Bathhouse John in high regard. The plan worked, and he soon became quite fond of the sisters. So, in 1900, the first year of the Everlay Club's operation, the Everlay sisters received their first invitation to the underworld social event of the year, the First Ward Ball known in the levy as just the ball. Hinky Dink and Bathhouse had been throwing this party since 1896, when the two men decided they needed a way to raise extra funds for their respective campaign war chests. Hosting a party and selling tickets proved to be lucrative, as such things tend to be when the host has enough political power to demand that everyone in an entire neighborhood purchase tickets. Described in local papers as Chicago's annual disgrace and the First Ward's annual orgy, the ball was a transparent shakedown. Bathhouse and Hinky Dink visited each madam in town to tell her how many tickets she ought to buy. Woe betide the vice entrepreneur who declined. A cartoon in the Chicago Tribune depicted the aldermen at the ball standing next to a barrel full of money with a sign on it reading, 
guests not contributing voluntarily will regret it. A large campaign war chest was particularly important in turn of the 20th century Chicago, where, at election time, votes would be purchased at a flat rate of 50 cents each. The city might be hopelessly corrupt, but you couldn't argue with its efficiency. Of course, Ada and Minna wouldn't dream of turning down an opportunity to support their favorite aldermen. Upon receiving their first invitation to the ball, the two madams immediately began planning their grand entrance. They would arrive, of course, by horse-drawn carriage, with a uniformed coachman to drive the prancing team. Perched on the back of their handsome cab would be the Everlight Club's most beautiful girl, dressed to the nines. Following enclosed carriages behind them, the rest of the club's fleet of high-dollar courtesans. As for the Everlays themselves, they would bring out their very finest diamonds, don exquisite gowns, and top it all off with hats that would be the envy of any proper society woman in Chicago. Making a good impression at their very first ball, they knew, would put every competitor in the levy on notice. A poor impression, on the other hand, could be the end of their club. When the day of the ball finally came, the Everlays got everything they ever wanted and more. According to Sin in the Second City by Karen Abbott, Bathhouse John wore a green suit coat, lavender trousers, and pink gloves. At midnight, the dandy alderman led a grand march around the dance floor. On each of his arms was an Everlay sister. This gesture designated them the queens of the ball. As they circumnavigated the Chicago Coliseum with Bathhouse John, Ada and Minna saw their rival madams scowl and frown. The alderman's choice elevated two newcomers above women who had been working for decades in the levee, but none of the other madams dared to say a word to Bathhouse John about it. They didn't want their protection fees raised. From that night forward, the Everlay sisters and their club were unquestionably the dominant force in the levee, Word spread far and wide, and men began visiting as much to see the brothel itself as to visit the girls. There was a whole room in which grown men could play with fireworks while they waited to be introduced to a companion. The silver room had walls made of sterling silver. The dinner served at the club outclassed any restaurant in the city. Rival clubs, which couldn't afford to compete on interior decor, resorted to dirty tricks to keep their share of the business. One brothel owner paid local taxi drivers to pick up inebriated clients asking for the Everlay Club and drop them off at his door instead. Minna and Ada were unbothered. Anyone too drunk to tell which brothel he'd arrived at wouldn't have been admitted into the Everlay Club anyway unless he was very rich, of course. And in the spring of 1902, a customer arrived who was so rich, it took the entire staff of the Everlay Club to give him the welcome he deserved. Prince Henry of Prussia, brother of the German emperor, was in Chicago to collect a ship for his brother, and he wanted to meet the city's own royalty, the Everlay sisters. Of course, the Everlay Club wasn't on the royal itinerary. 
According to the local papers, the prince would be spending his time in Chicago visiting such sober attractions as the First Regiment Armory and the grave of President Abraham Lincoln. But the prince wanted to be sure the club was prepared for his arrival, so he sent an emissary to bring word that he planned on March 3rd to pay a visit. This news sent Ada and Minna into a frenzy of planning. Minna, always the extrovert, was determined to show the prince something he'd never seen before and would never see again. Not if he visited every house of ill repute on earth would he be treated to such a spectacle as he'd get at the Everlay Club. Rehearsals began. Custom costumes were made. The girls were tutored in proper protocol for entertaining the German royal family. And by the time the prince arrived on the club's doorstep, just after midnight, everyone inside was ready to perform a spectacular show. A full orchestra struck up a tune to welcome the prince and his entourage. Minna walked them into the club's Pullman car dining room. Once every man had a plate of sumptuous food, she signaled the girls to begin. The Everlay Butterflies performed a wild dance, choreographed by Minna, celebrating the Greek god Dionysus. The girls were clad in deer hide, according to Sin in the Second City, with nothing on underneath. As the orchestra put everything they had into their own performance, the girls leaped and cavorted. At the climax of the show, the girls reenacted the Titans' mythological dismemberment of Dionysus Zagreus, the infant son of Zeus. With their teeth and hands, a fleet of deerskin-clad butterflies tore into a scale model of a bull. As they tore it apart, servants presented the women with platters of uncooked steak. The prince watched in shock and amazement as some of the world's most beautiful women devoured raw meat, splattering him and his entourage with blood. They were vicious, wild, uncontrollable. Everything he liked in a woman. Minna's bizarre plan worked. The strange spectacle was like nothing Prince Henry had ever seen before or would see again. As the girls dashed away to change into evening attire, the prince toasted Ada and Minna, calling them Fräuleins. Later in the evening, according to Sin in the Second City, a solo dance performance to The Blue Danube was given by Vidette, the club's most talented dancer. In the act of performing a particularly high kick, Vidette lost her high-heeled slipper. It sailed across the room, overturned a bottle of champagne, and landed in a puddle of bubbly. One of the prince's entourage leapt to save Vidette from embarrassment. He lifted her shoe from the ground, brought it to his lips, and drained the champagne from it. One by one, each of the men in the room plucked a slipper from an Everlay butterfly, called on the waiter to fill it with champagne, and drank deeply. Even Prince Henry himself joined in. When word spread of the prince's cavorting at the Everlay Club, it started a national craze. If a gentleman of wealth and privilege wanted to show that he was truly in love with a woman, he would drink champagne from her slipper. New York City's most eligible girls began demanding this gesture from their beaux. 
The papers didn't risk an international incident by shaming the prince in the way they shamed other respectable gentlemen caught in the Everlay Club, but at least one Tribune reporter managed to needle him just a little bit. After Prince Henry of Prussia finally departed to sail his brother's new ship back to Germany, the headline commemorating his visit read, Prince Henry Americanized. After Prince Henry's visit, the Everlay Club became known from coast to coast as a sporting house fit for royalty. Already the unquestioned queens of the Chicago sex industry, the Everlay sisters were now perhaps the most renowned madams in the country. It seemed like nothing could go wrong for the Everlay Club, and for a while, nothing did. When we return, a misguided vice crusade begins. And now, back to the story. Throughout the first years of the 20th century, the Everlay Club continued to dominate the Levy District and, indeed, the national vice trade. It was a can't-miss attraction for everyone from automobile salesmen to professional athletes and millionaire capitalists. But in the world outside the club's mahogany doors, dark rumors swirled about the sex trade. A book, Traffic in Girls, published in 1899 by female missionary Charlton Edholm, was widely read in Chicago. The tome alleged that brothels got their girls by way of procurers called panders. These men allegedly seduced virginal girls with promises of ordinary employment, then drugged and raped them, only to sell them into sexual slavery at a brothel for as little as $25. These narratives not only gained steam in the early 1900s, they took on a new facet. Early tracts decrying this traffic in girls focused on American women, but as immigration surged after the turn of the 20th century, suddenly reformers began to allege that sex slaves were being shipped in from overseas. With immigration at its highest level in history, relative to the U.S.-born population, conditions were perfect for such a scare to captivate the public. Ada and Minna heard rumblings about what the reformers dubbed white slavery, but they paid it little heed. They always had a waiting list of girls wanting to work at the Everlay Club. What need would the Everlay sisters have for sex slaves when their best girls made as much as $15,000 in a week? The average working woman's weekly salary in those days was just $6. The sisters believed that any reasonable person would understand these economic incentives and therefore refrain from accusing the Everlay Club of white slavery. But they trusted too much in their peers. According to decades of reform, prostitutes, feminists, and the war on white slavery, a thesis by Jody Masoda, Suffragists at the turn of the 20th century unified their movement in part by turning a scornful eye on sex workers and their clients. The suffrage movement had a single goal, get women the vote. And to do that, according to Masoda, the movement sacrificed the idea of women's liberation from strict gender roles. Instead, To convince men they were worthy of the vote, suffragettes painted women as intrinsically pure, virtuous, and enamored of domesticity. Any woman working in a place like the Everlay Club was doing something so unnatural for a woman that she must have been forced into it. 
Ada and Minna didn't realize that the psychology of this new anti-vice movement spelled certain doom for their brothel. The concept of sacred values in social psychology refers to the idea that most individuals have at least a few beliefs that they wouldn't trade for anything. For instance, if you wouldn't kick a puppy for any amount of money, kindness to puppies is one of your sacred values. According to historian Susan Kingsley-Kent, suffragettes genuinely believed that the political disenfranchisement of women was closely connected to the existence of sex work. They saw no possible way that a world which allowed brothels to operate could also become a world in which women were trusted to vote. Their sacred values wouldn't allow them to tolerate or embrace sex workers, even if it meant siding with radical religious leaders who viewed women as inferior to men, the suffragists' campaign against vice districts would continue. It was, in their minds, the only way to reach enfranchisement. In August of 1904, the reformers dedicated to abolishing sex work gained a powerful new ally. The Reverend Ernest Albert Bell, a Chicago native, father of seven and preacher to hundreds, was looking for a grand quest. Reverend Bell was nearing 40 and hadn't yet accomplished the great work he felt he was destined for. An early attempt to establish a religious school, which he referred to as his, quote, Oxford in India, failed to raise sufficient funds. He prayed for guidance as to his next step and found it in the form of a proposition from a levy sex worker. Bell later wrote in his memoir, Fighting the Traffic in Young Girls or the War on the White Slave Trade, quote, into the red light districts, as long as they remain, men and youths from the whole city and the whole world are irresistibly drawn. The levy, blazing in electric lights and floating in liquor, is regarded by visitors as one of the chief sights in Chicago. If Ada and Minna read these words, they must have thought, and so it is. They worked hard to make the Everlay Club one of Chicago's finest attractions. It had to be, to get men to spend hundreds or thousands in a night. But Reverend Bell didn't mean to compliment the sisters. He was articulating a primal fear that, according to professor of psychology Celia Kitzinger, underlies the entire history of Abrahamic religion, beginning with the story of Eve's temptation of Adam. Although the Everlake Club had never once published an advertisement, vice crusaders considered it an irresistible temptation for men visiting Chicago. Writing for The New Internationalist, Kitzinger summarizes the socially pervasive theory of the female temptress, saying, Female sexuality causes men to lose self-control so that they cease to be responsible for their actions, or so runs the accepted wisdom. Kitzinger goes on to describe a case in which a rapist was sentenced to just three months in prison after the judge in his case described the five-year-old victim as unusually sexually promiscuous. Afflicted by this fear of female sexuality, Reverend Bell felt called to campaign against vice in Chicago. In August of 1904, in a dark, sweaty chapel in Chicago's Lower End Vice District of Custom House Place, Bell established the Midnight Mission. 
His organization, composed of Bell and his congregation, would stop at nothing to eradicate sex work in Chicago. The missionaries agreed to rest only on Monday. Every other night of the week, they would march through the city's vice districts, praying and singing hymns. When they passed by, Minna made a point of coming to the window and watching. She felt a certain respect and fondness for men of faith. Although life had made her into an atheist, she was raised a Christian herself. Ada and Minna nicknamed the missionaries the Visiting Firemen and joked about their near-nightly prayer vigils. But unlike other madams in the levee, they didn't allow their girls to taunt or tempt the marchers. On one occasion, when Reverend Bell himself asked if he might come inside the Everlay Club and sing a hymn for the girls, Minna not only obliged, she ordered Van Van to accompany him on piano. Reverend Bell might have envisioned himself preaching to the sex workers inside the Everlay Club, then leaving with a string of them trailing behind him, changed by a revelation directly from God. Perhaps he imagined he would be taunted, or like his savior, Jesus Christ, subjected to bodily harm. If these girls weren't slaves, then they must be possessed by the devil. Instead, he received a polite reception from Minna Everlay herself. She raised her dainty hand to keep order whenever the girls or the pianist seemed tempted to mock the reverend. Minna's power over her house was absolute. Although Reverend Bell had dedicated his life to taking from them a job they loved, the Everlay Butterflies received him as if he was an honored guest. But when he finished his hymn and departed, it was without saving a single soul. A campaign of conversion couldn't bring down the Everlay Club, but on November 22nd, 1905, bloodshed threatened to. 37-year-old Marshall Field Jr., heir to the $100 million fortune of entrepreneur Marshall Field, visited the Everlay Club and not for the first time. At least that's how one story of the events that transpired goes. A Kansas woman, Mrs. Vera Scott, later claimed to have been a key part of the events on November 22nd. According to her version of the story, Vera was, in 1905, something of a professional gold digger. Her greatest mark was the young Mr. Field, who she'd already been out with several times. On November 22nd, after an evening of drinking, he suggested they visit the Everlay Club. Slumming was a favorite hobby of privileged women in those days. They loved to visit the vice districts, see the sex workers, and get the thrill of seeing a different, far more risque slice of life. So Vera agreed to go. Ada and Minna knew the younger Mr. Field well. They'd taken some of his $100 million fortune before in exchange for lavish entertainment. So they were happy to let him enter the club with his date and assigned a butterfly named Alice to accompany Marshall and Vera into a private room. Perhaps Marshall had designs on a threesome, or perhaps he just wanted to introduce his date to a lady of the night, slumming for slumming's sake. Whatever his intentions, Marshall Field Jr. didn't last long in the opulent private room before his overly forward behavior upset his female companion. Vera snatched his pistol, she said, and aimed it at Field. She told him to stand down. Unfortunately, the silver pistol had a hair trigger. Vera's finger barely twitched, 
and she had shot her date in the left side, just below the ribs. The last thing the wealthy heir wanted was a scandal, with his elderly father ill and soon to deliver him his inheritance. So he grit his teeth against the pain and told Vera not to call the police. He refused to be seen in the papers under the headline, Heir to Fields Fortune Shot in Den of Vice. At Marshall's urging, and with the help of Ada and Minna, who wanted the bleeding man out of their brothel immediately, the young Mr. Fields was bundled into a cab and driven home. Upon arriving at home, Fields was propped up in his own armchair, and his silver pistol was set in front of him. When he was discovered there by his servants, he claimed to have accidentally shot himself while cleaning his pistol. Vera decamped for a hotel, where she claims she was located and paid $10,000, worth about $225,000 today, by Marshall Fields Sr. to keep the whole matter quiet. Five days later, on November 27, 1905, Marshall Fields Jr. died. The instant his death hit the papers, rival Madame Vic Shaw suspected the Everlay sisters. She made it her business to know when a millionaire was in the levy, so that her own staff might tempt him to visit her brothel. Although her staff were not quite as comely as the butterflies, they offered services not on the menu at the Everlay place. Vic knew this was her chance to get rid of the competition. She decided to frame Minna Everlay for the murder. With the Everlay sisters gone, she could raise her prices and recruit the butterflies. It was worth the $40,000 investment she decided to make in hiring Pony Moore, an expert in vice and one of the very few black brothel owners in the area, to figure out how to pin the crime on Minna. Pony decided to use half his fee in the form of a bribe to Nellie and Phyllis, two Everlay butterflies who were at work on the night in question. Arrangements were made on Christmas Eve of 1905 for the two girls to leave the Everlay Club and meet Pony, who would escort them to the police station to tell their tale about Minna Everlay. Thereafter, they'd receive their $20,000 and could disappear with it before Minna realized they were to blame. It was again Minna's perceptiveness and sharp instincts that saved her. When Nellie and Phyllis began sneaking around as if they had something to hide, Minna noticed the change in their behavior. She followed them. When they received an unexpected phone call, Minna snuck upstairs to listen in on an extension. It was Pony. And what he said struck fear into her heart. Pony reassured the women that, after they told the police that Minna murdered young Marshall Fields, they'd get their money. Pony told Nellie and Phyllis to meet him right away. They agreed and hung up the phone. Upstairs, Minna hung up her extension too. She fought back panic. Minna knew she had to be careful. Instead of confronting the women right away, she called a friend at the police department, according to Sin in the Second City. She followed Nellie and Phyllis to one of Pony's two low-end brothels, the Turf Exchange. In the company of a police sergeant, Minna burst through its doors. Coming up, what Minna saw inside the Turf Exchange and how she dealt with her backstabbing butterflies. And now, back to the story. 
On Christmas Eve of 1905, Madame Minna Everlay learned that two of her own courtesans were planning to frame her for the murder of one of Chicago's richest heirs. She uncovered the plot just in time to follow the women to their planned liaisons with Vice Lord Pony Moore. She found the girls in flagrante delicto, on the sofa with Pony Moore and one of his friends. Apparently, the business of framing Minna for murder had been put on hold while the men satisfied a more primal desire. As soon as they saw Minna, Phyllis and Nellie burst into tears. They apologized over and over for trying to frame her. In front of the police sergeant, they implicated Pony Moore and Vic Shaw in the scheme. But no charges were ever filed. It was the opinion of the Chicago police that a little bit of theft and bribery was hardly out of the ordinary in the levy and should not be punished. Minna forgave her butterflies for their betrayal. Unlike Vic Shaw, who kept her girls in line with a whip, Minna understood that the sex trade called for a certain dose of greed, not to mention a gift for lying. After all, the men wanted to feel like their chosen courtesans were genuinely attracted to them. A profitable fiction, but a lie all the same. According to the Handbook of Positive Psychology, the tendency to forgive is not a fixed personality trait, but rather a skill many people develop as they age. In 1905, Minna was almost 40, although she claimed to be just 27. Minna's response to Nellie and Phyllis's betrayal would place her in what positive psychologists view as the third stage of moral reasoning about forgiveness. In this third stage, people grow to value forgiveness not merely as a transactional obligation in exchange for an apology, but as a universal good that contributes to social harmony and expresses unconditional love. Minna welcomed the two traitors home, but it would be some time before their relationship was as warm as it had been before the attempted frame-up. Minna and Ada Everlay had vanquished one threat to their club, but another was just around the corner. In late December of 1905, Mayor Edward Fitzsimmons Dunn announced he would order every brothel in Custom House Place to close by May 1st, 1906. Reverend Bell's midnight mission had gotten to the mayor. Dunn had designs on higher office, including the governor's mansion. Bell and his missionaries convinced him that the white slavery scare was real and that he could not possibly hope to salvage his reputation if he failed to act. Custom House Place was a less valuable vice district than the levy. Unlike the Everlay Club, it didn't draw people in from out of town. It catered mostly to locals. Closing the brothels there wouldn't hurt tourism. So Mayor Dunn stood firm, even when the Custom House Place brothel owners offered him $50,000 to change his mind. At a time when most politically active adults had grown up during the Civil War, if one could stoke race-related fears in a white audience, he could almost always inspire them to act. Fear of the foreign other ran deeply through all of Reverend Bell's campaigns against segregated vice districts in Chicago. Reverend Bell said in his autobiography, unless we make energetic and successful war on all the vice districts and all that pertains to them, 
we shall have Oriental brothel slavery thrust on us from China and Japan. Jew traders, too, shall populate our levies with Polish Jewesses and any others who will make money for them. Shall we defend our American civilization or lower our flag to the most despicable foreigners—French, Irish, Italians, Jews, and Mongolians? Most historians agree this threat was, at the very least, significantly exaggerated. According to Cecily Devereaux, publishing in the journal Victorian Review, most historians agree that the threat of white slavery was mostly or entirely invented. However real or false the stories of white slavery might be, they were compelling. Ada and Minna read about the Custom House Place brothels, forced to lock their doors for the last time. They turned to each other and sighed. For the first time, this fight was coming closer to home than they could stomach. They were still sure the levy would remain intact, defended as it was by Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink Kenna. Who would go against them? But the crowds gathering to hear the preacher speak were getting larger, and the popular stories of white slavery were only getting more and more lurid. Alarmist messaging about sex work circulated. One flyer read, Wanted. 60,000 girls to take the place of 60,000 white slaves who will die this year. But what was there to do about the growing public hostility towards brothels, except carry on with the party? Even as uprooted custom house place brothel owners moved into the blocks surrounding the Everlay Club, Ada and Minna pushed forward. They renovated the club, they welcomed guests, even receiving a visit from heavyweight champion boxer Jack Johnson. They danced to the gold piano, rebuffed overtures from suitors, and delighted in one another's company. But no amount of joy and laughter inside the Everlay Club could prevent the world outside from growing ever more hostile to the sisters' occupation. In early 1907, a girl named Mona Marshall wrote, I am a white slave on a scrap of paper and tossed it out the window of a low-end Chicago brothel. News of her note reached state's attorney Clifford Rowe, a talented young prosecutor seeking to make his name. He was familiar with Reverend Bell's work and had followed with great interest prosecutions in other cities related to the alleged trade in white slaves. Rowe leapt into action to rescue Mona Marshall, and the papers came along for the ride, eager to hear and print every lurid detail of the woman's torments. Mona Marshall seemed like she'd be the downfall of vice in Chicago, all by herself. She told a compelling, heart-wrenching story of falling in love with a man who drugged her, imprisoned her in an apartment, had her raped, and took away her clothes. Then she received a skimpy courtesan's outfit and was sold to her new employer at a grimy brothel. The final twist of the knife? She was told she was already in debt to this new employer. She would have to work long enough to pay back the cost of her new uniform. By the time that was paid off, she owed rent. But within weeks of Mona's rescue, it became clear her story didn't add up. The man who had supposedly held her against her will in an apartment? Well, she left the apartment, returned, and lived there with him for some weeks. There was no evidence of the alleged rape. 
After creating a firestorm of media attention, Clifford Rowe quietly dropped the prosecution. Yet for the Everlay Club, the damage was done. Mona's case only served to embolden the tellers of horrific urban legends about panders seducing girls, rendering them unmarriageable, and then selling them like so many bruised watermelons. According to pamphlets circulating at the time, a girl in Chicago could hardly go outside without meeting one. Of course, nobody thought to suggest that perhaps, if society didn't perceive sexually active women as immoral and unworthy of employment, rape survivors wouldn't feel forced into sex work. On May 4, 1908, the Illinois government bowed to public pressure and unanimously passed a bill establishing huge fines for anyone found recruiting for disorderly houses. Ada and Minna had no need to recruit, but they saw the writing on the wall as the world turned against women like them. They began to worry that even the levy wasn't safe. In December, when the time came for the levy's annual celebration of debauchery, called the First Ward Ball, the sisters' fears were further validated. The Chicago Tribune publicly threatened to print the names of any respectable citizen found attending the affair. And on December 13, 1908, a bomb was blown up in the annex of the Chicago Coliseum, where the ball was to be held the following night. But even terrorism wouldn't stop the first ward from turning out once more to raise money for its crooked alderman. Bathhouse John, according to Sin in the Second City, poked fun at his critics by dressing soberly for the occasion. Anyone eager to mock his usual frippery was disappointed in his gray suit. It was an evening of drink and debauchery. Girls were seen half unconscious on the floor, asking men to pour champagne in their mouths. The Tribune wrote, if a great disaster had befallen the festive gathering, there would not have been a second story worker, a dip, thug, plug ugly, porch climber, dope fiend, or scarlet woman remaining in Chicago. It was to be the Levy's last great party of its kind, though nobody knew it at the time. On the night of the event, it felt like a comeback. In 1909, prosecutor Clifford Rowe finally found the white slavery slam dunk he'd been seeking for years. The case of Maurice and Julia Bever was the best Rowe ever came across. There was solid evidence to prove that the Bevers had ordered a young woman to recruit sex workers for their brothel. They told her to, quote, get that little Jew girl and promised her $50 if she did so. On November 27, 1909, both Bevers received the maximum sentence under Illinois state law, one year in prison and a $1,000 fine. Although they later won an appeal and returned to the vice trade, the world saw their trial as proof of a widespread white slave trade. The world grew ever more hostile to the Everleys. In November of 1910, Minna tired of staying quiet. She talked with Ada, and together they determined they would answer the critics back directly by publishing their club's first ever brochure. They had never advertised before. It was a classy publication, no seductive photos of girls in states of undress. 
it showed only the inside of the house with its many luxurious parlors. If you didn't know you were looking at a brothel, you might think you were holding a real estate brochure. Minna printed 200, titled them The Everlake Club Illustrated, and sent them out to powerful friends of the brothel. Her staff were each given a few copies to share with trusted allies. It was a direct challenge, and Minna knew it. At a time when the world wanted her to be quiet and meek, more like Ada than like herself, she had instead become louder. At a time when the world wanted her to shrink away, she was investing in growing her business. The plan was a bold one and a doomed one. Months later, in October of 1911, one of their brochures made its way to the desk of the newly elected mayor, Carter Harrison Jr., who had formerly been mayor of Chicago from 1897 to 1905. In his triumphant political comeback, he had promised to be tougher on crime than he was the first time around. And now, in his own office, a young man taunted the mayor, waving photos of the Everlay Club in his face, praising Chicago for its finest attraction. The mayor's cheeks burned. Although Hinky Dink Kenna and Bathhouse John would be angry, he had no choice but to act. After all, the federal government had just waded into the white slavery fight, passing the Mann Act, criminalizing the transport of any woman across interstate lines for immoral purposes. Furious, the mayor scribbled a note to the chief of police. Close the Everlight Club, it read, according to Sin in the Second City, before the order had even reached the police department, word of it was all over the city. Ada and Minna knew this time the threat was real and existential. If the police came to shutter the club, they would surely arrest its madams. They ordered their carriage prepared and urged their girls to pack up and go. But the police didn't show, that night or the next. Having received their share of bribes from the sisters over the years, the policemen took their time enforcing the order, dragging it out until October 25th of 1911. Finally, a hand dog sergeant who was himself a friend of Minna's delivered the order. It would be the club's last night of operation. Ada and Minna put brave faces on and entertained their clients for the very last time. Their girls dried their tears and laughed and danced in the parlor. Each time one of them twirled past Ada or Minna, she would whisper something in the madam's ear about how she had never had a job like this one and never would again. The crowd stayed up until the wee hours. The next day, it was all over. Ada and Minna, hand in hand, departed for a European vacation. They had a million dollars in cash saved, worth about $28 million today. It was enough to sustain them for the rest of their lives. Within months, the levy was cleared out entirely, never to return to its former glory. When they returned to Chicago briefly in the fall of 1912, the sisters were sorry to see their city so sanitized. They sold their residence in Chicago and moved to the Upper West Side in New York City. The sisters lost most of their fortune in the 1929 crash of the stock market, but had enough left to maintain their sumptuous lifestyle until the end. And most importantly, they had each other. 
up until September 16, 1948, when Minna died alone in her hospital bed at the age of 82. Ada lived another 12 years, dying on January 5, 1960, at 95. Those 12 years apart were the loneliest of Ada's life. Though she filled her days with friendship, art, and the task of auctioning off a lifetime's worth of her possessions. After the world's attention turned to the evils of World War I, and thereafter to the Great Depression, attention ceased to be paid to the so-called white slave crisis. But in recent years, the rhetoric of reformers like Reverend Bell has returned to the fore. You might have seen the urban legends yourself. Viral Facebook posts claiming a man seen lurking in a Target parking lot or at a gas station turned out to be a human trafficker. Ultimately, most of these modern-day retellings of the old pander stories are soundly debunked. Of course, human trafficking is a real and terrible thing. But today, just like in 1909, a worrisome way of thinking is behind the spread of specific, false, easily disproved stories. One thing's for sure. Despite the existence of legal brothels today in Nevada, the United States will probably never again see a place like the Everlay Club, where every sex worker earned enough in a year or two to support herself for life, while enjoying a luxurious lifestyle and great discretion in her choice of clients. And perhaps our culture is the poorer for the loss of the Everlay Club. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Yelena War and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa Richardson.